Hi, Jacob's Well. My name is Sean Kaiser, and I'm a member of this church. Uh, I also work with InterVarsity here in Eau Claire, which is a share partner of Jacob's Well. Uh, so my job is basically to work alongside of college students, equipping them to know how to live out their faith and how to share it with other people on college campuses. So I work with UW Eau Claire. And it's so wonderful to be here for our arrival series, giving the message. So I'm wondering, does anyone else feel the Christmas letdown? Maybe it's just me. It's that moment where you realize that all of the planning, all of the anticipation, the preparation, the presents, they're all done and it's over. And in a year where COVID, the reality of COVID probably made it even more difficult. Oh, what an unsatisfying thing. It's the worst. It's like a big reminder that we have to go back to a life that in many ways can feel so unsatisfying. There is nothing quite like the Christmas letdown to remind us that we're still waiting for a fulfillment that hasn't happened yet. But that tension, that sense of still waiting for the moment when that letdown won't happen anymore, that's the final and the most important hope of celebrating the Advent season. That even as we just celebrated an Advent that happened long ago, that at the same time, we are waiting, longing for an Advent that is yet to come. We are in the now, but not yet of Advents. Because we have this amazing hope, not that Jesus only came once, but that he's coming again. But in the meantime, how can we persevere through this now if we don't have the not yet? We're going to be looking at the, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians to help us understand how this hope of the not yet can actually help us stick with Jesus and persevere even through difficult nows. And so before we jump in, would you join me in prayer? God, we're so wonderfully grateful for everything that Christmas brings, uh, for the, the ability that we have to worship you and celebrate your arrival. And we also acknowledge that it leaves us in the tension of waiting and longing for something more, uh, particularly in a season when holidays are even more complex when they, than they normally are. And so I pray that we would receive from you in this message and that you would help us to see the hope that can help us persevere to the day when we get to be reunited with you. In your name, amen. So we're picking up in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So Paul shares this amazing hope that those who have passed on before us aren't gone forever. They too, just like us, have this hope of resurrection, that when Jesus returns, he brings resurrection and life. Now, we don't necessarily know what it's going to be like to be reunited with believers that have passed before us, what our relationships will look like. Scripture does indicate that our relationships will be different in some respects, 
But it's so hopeful to know that we don't have to say a final goodbye for our loved ones who walk with Jesus. And I want to encourage you to remember that the mercy and grace of Jesus is ready and waiting for those who don't know him yet. The other thing that we don't know is what this interim experience is like for those who have already passed away. Are there souls with Jesus now awaiting the resurrection? Are their spirits sleeping, in a sense? Theologians don't actually agree on this. There's multiple schools of thought. But what we can all agree on, and what this verse tells us, is that those who have passed away are waiting for the same resurrection that we are expecting. And when that resurrection happens, believers will be reunited with each other and reunited with Christ. So let's talk a little bit about this resurrection some more. Because we Christians talk so much about heaven, sometimes we can assume that the idea of living as spirits in heaven is our end game, that that's where it's all headed. However, scripture doesn't teach that this is our ultimate destination. In other words, scripture doesn't tell us that we are going to end up as like disembodied spirits floating in heaven, playing harps, as some people would say. Instead, scripture talks about the resurrection of our bodies. And so to clarify, when people talk, when we talk about our loved ones being in heaven, I don't think that this is necessarily wrong to say, but it's important to recognize that the story of scripture indicates that this isn't our end game. What Paul is telling us here, and what he says in other places of scripture, is that we can expect a physical resurrection to life, a resurrection of our bodies. And I love that this is the reality that scripture teaches. I love the implications here. Our faith is a holistic faith. It's an embodied faith. It means that the same God who created us and our bodies, who breathed life into us and called it very good, is the same God that is coming to resurrect, to redeem, and to transform them, to transform us. This means that our bodies, our physical selves, matter. Our bodies are not bad. They are not evil. They are not shameful. They're not accidental. Our bodies may be imperfect and fallen like so much of what we see in our world, but they won't always be that way. Furthermore, scripture teaches that not only our bodies will be transformed, but the rest of creation as well. It's actually one of my and my wife Jenna's favorite conversations that we come back to when we're talking about faith, is to imagine and wonder what is this new creation going to be like? Because in a very real sense, we don't really know. As much as scripture gives us images and metaphors, and we know that transformation and renewal are coming, we are also told that we cannot imagine what it will be like. Just that the end of our broken world And the new creation is more like the real beginning of our story than anything else. Another thing for you to chew on, if Jesus is bringing the transformation of all things, if he's bringing a new creation, what if the beauty that we recognize now in this creation is like a signal? What if it's like a foreshadowing of what is to come? This is actually a very famous point that C.S. Lewis made, that maybe we could actually follow 
our unsatisfied longings all the way to the conclusion that we are waiting for a new creation. We are waiting for the restoration of all things, the not yet, the second advent. And if the beauty and the glory that we see now is a foreshadowing, it makes me think that the new creation really is like an amplification, that when sin is written out, is taken out of the story, that all of the good and beauty that we see now will actually be amplified, that it'll be exponentially greater. And if you can imagine, like even just imagine with me for a moment, like a piece of this creation that you love for its beauty. It might be scenery or a landscape. It might be the beauty of your family, your family's relationships. Imagine that and then realize that this is still a shadow of the beauty and glory that are coming. Anything that we can imagine is not as good or as beautiful as what is actually coming. And this is what Paul calls the cornerstone of our hope in other passages of scripture, because if all we believe is that Jesus died, then there's no end to the story of this broken world. There's no moment where the work that he began there is brought to fulfillment. But because Jesus is coming again, we can believe that our story isn't a story of meaningless toil and hardship. Instead, our story is one of hopeful perseverance as we wait for the second advent that will change everything. Let's move forward. We see from what Paul says that according to the Lord's word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So in Jesus' returns, he brings resurrection and salvation. Those who have gone before us will actually be the first to be raised to life. Secondly, when we see him coming with a loud command and a trumpet blast that can tell us a couple of things, there's not going to be much secrecy about this coming. The loud voice, the trumpet blast, these announce that King Jesus has come back. The king has returned in the flesh. And this is so different from the first advent of Jesus, right? Jesus comes in humility, in infancy, in poverty, He lived a life of submission to the Father, a life of selfless love, all which culminates with his sacrifice on the cross. But for Advent number two, the return, Jesus comes in authority and power and majesty. And in order to see this more clearly, I'm going to move us just for a moment to a passage in Revelation 1. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. 
I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. Jesus is so terrifying and majestic and epic here, so much so that John, the one who's experiencing this vision, falls down in fear and worship. But the first thing that King Jesus does is to place his hand on John's shoulder and say, do not be afraid. We've heard these words before. These are the words of the angels appearing to the shepherds by night. They are the words of Jesus when he speaks to his disciples when they are terrified by his power over creation. Our King Jesus, at his return, is the same Jesus we see throughout the Gospels of the New Testament. His love, his compassion, his grace. What's different here is that now he is fully revealed in his power and majesty. He has done it. He has submitted to the will of the Father, and now he is exalted and reigning over all things. Back to Thessalonians to talk about one more thing. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep like we saw. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Paul describes a loud command here, I wanted to come back to this to show that it's very similar to what Jesus said to Lazarus when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This shows us that what Jesus promises is coming is also a reflection of what he's already done and what he's already proven. He's already brought resurrection out of death. He's already brought restoration and renewal with his life here. So the second advent, his return, is more going to be a fulfillment of all of those things than even something new. What I think that means is that the work that we saw Jesus do in his life, the work that he's doing in our lives and the lives of our community, it's a foretaste. It's an indicator of what it will be like when Jesus returns in full. That is so amazing. That is so hopeful. Be encouraged by those words. Continuing on, Paul says that after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this verse here is actually the cornerstone verse behind the idea of the rapture, that God is going to snatch his believers away, especially to save them from some kind of danger or the coming judgment. There's so much conversation around the rapture. I think we get so excited about the idea of Jesus' return, and we want to ask all these questions like, when exactly is this going to happen? What is it going to look like? How does it fit in with other passages that talk about Jesus' return? And those questions are great ones to ask. They're great ones to talk about. But there's an important point here that I don't want us to miss. And that's that in this passage, Paul isn't trying to necessarily give them a manual or an exact timeline of events. His words about Jesus' coming are actually really brief. The point here is that regardless of what Jesus' returns look like exactly, we can know these things for certain, that he will bring resurrection to life, that he will bring salvation, that he will reunite his believers. 
And that's actually what the word rapture itself means. It means to be captivated, to be spellbound, literally captivated by the presence of Jesus. And so hear me say that as people talk about the rapture, that it's not necessarily that it's right or wrong. I just don't want us to miss the point that Paul's making here, that we can have certainty in the fact that Jesus is returning. He's coming back and we are meant to be encouraged for our now with these words. Continuing on, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, about these times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so this, what we need to see here about Jesus' return is that it will be unexpected. People will not see it coming. And we also have this hint that Jesus is returning not just to save his people, his return also signals some kind of destruction and judgment. And that's a sobering reality. It makes it all the more important for us to be ready to receive Jesus. He extends his love and his mercy and forgiveness to us, but he isn't going to let evil win forever. He's not going to let his creation suffer the presence of evil together. And that's a good thing, sobering, but good. And so to bring all this together, we can take heart because we have the incredible hope of this second advent, that Jesus brings resurrection in life and reunion for his believers, that we can look forward to what he's going to do because of what he's already done, and that people who are not already expecting his return will be caught by surprise. So what does this mean for us as we wait for Jesus That's actually what Paul is talking about here. What does it mean to be prepared for our now? Paul says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So there's this contrast here of who belongs to the day and who belongs to the night. This idea of belonging to the day, being ready and sober, means that we should live our lives in readiness, not anxiety, but readiness so that we are not caught off guard. This idea of having faith, hope, and love to guard and protect us is like the passage we see in Ephesians, the famous armor of God passage. It's a very similar idea here that as we lean into faith, hope, and love, that it can guard us against the evil of the world. And Paul says, encourage each other this way. By contrast, those that belong to the night are characterized by being asleep or drunk. So when Jesus comes like a thief in the night, they won't be ready to receive him. And so the call here is to not let ourselves lose our alertness or our readiness. I think that the ability to be attentive, to be present to God is actually the best way we can follow Jesus and grow. If we aren't aware of what God is doing or what he longs for our lives, how can we follow him? 
How can we be ready for his return? So what does it mean practically to live like a child of the day? The gist of what Paul is saying here is this. Be alert. Be sober. More and more, continue to honor and please God with the life that you're living. Find out what it means to honor God and then do it. Throughout 1 Thessalonians, Paul has many, many specific encouragements for what that means. And so if you want more specificity, you should totally go back and read through his encouragements and commands. But as we're talking about this idea of being alert and sober, this idea of what it means to be prepared for our now, I have a couple of next steps for you to consider that come right from Paul's final words to the Thessalonians. Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that we can do is to rejoice, specifically to rejoice in the hope of Jesus' return. We can be encouraged that we know the end of the story that we are anticipating the second arrival of Jesus, the moment when there will be no more Christmas letdowns. As for what it could mean to have an attitude of rejoicing, that makes all the difference for how we live our lives, whether we live with hope or without hope. Secondly, Secondly, pray and give thanks in all circumstances. I know from my own experience and from my work with college students that prayer and gratitude are two of the most important but elusive habits that we can build. And so I don't encourage this next step tritely. Prayer is a difficult habit to build, but that makes it all the more important to emphasize and focus. Prayer is your communion and your connection to Jesus, and practicing gratitude will protect your mind from despair and hopelessness. If you don't take Paul's words for it, listen to the mental health experts on this one. The last thing that we can do is to learn how to discern and follow the voice of the Spirit in your life. Again, this is not an easy thing to do, but it's an important one for growing in maturity and staying ready for Jesus' return. Paul's encouragement specifically is don't quench the spirit, hold on to what is good and reject what is evil. The spirit of God is many different things, but one of his primary roles is to be God with us as we journey in following Jesus. So by learning to recognize the Spirit through things like knowing Scripture, through prayer, through being a regular part of Christian community, you can get to know him and know what it means to follow the voice of God. And so as we think about this idea of being prepared for our now with this hope of this beautiful not yet, Imagine if we put these things into practice, if they actually became habit. Imagine if we were a people that were characterized by rejoicing, by prayer, thanksgiving, and recognizing the spirit in our lives. I don't know about you, but that actually sounds like a pretty attractive community to be a part of. And imagine the impact that that would have in the lives of our family and friends and communities. I want to close and uh, end with this blessing that Paul actually gives in his own words to encourage the Thessalonians as he ends this letter. And so would you receive this closing blessing as I pray it over all of us? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.